So as we look ahead to the building project, um, the nursery is certainly a big part of it. Uh, we've been blessed in, in a really exciting way with the influx of a lot of new young families and a lot of children who have come um, into the church family over the last few years. And it's important that we take care of them. And one of the ways we do that is through our nursery ministry. And as you heard in this video, one of the downsides of our current nursery setup is that there are not toilet facilities connected to the nursery. And this creates a number of different issues. One is just a convenience issue for the nursery workers. But on top of that, uh, it's a liability. There's a safety risk for both the children and for the volunteers if you don't have an easily accessible toilet facility that's right there connected with the nursery. Um, and on top of that, if you do have a, uh, have a toilet facility connected right to the nursery, it eases the mind of parents who are entrusting their children to the nursery. And so we're excited that in the building project, the new nursery will have a toilet, a child-friendly toilet and bathroom connected right there to the nursery. On top of this, the nursery space will grow by 50% over what is currently there. It will be divided into two rooms that are accessible from one another, but it more easily allows for the young kids, especially, you know, infants and toddlers who are sitting quietly on the floor to be separated from the older children who are a bit more rambunctious. On top of that, these nursery rooms will be designed as nurseries so they don't appear to be classrooms that have some toys in them. And finally, the navigation to locate the nurseries will also be much easier. And so we're excited for the building project to allow our building to be uh, just more welcoming, to better serve the needs of everyone who comes through our doors, and on top of that, to more effectively support our mission of making disciples of Jesus. So this morning, as we turn to Scripture, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to First Chronicles chapter 29. 1 Chronicles 29 we're in a series right now called Joyful Generosity. And today we're looking at the topic of how this idea of worship relates to generosity. And as I look at the society around us, we have to recognize that there is no shortage of worshipers in our society. No shortage of worshipers. The question, though, is what are people worshiping? Because for many people, they are worshipers, but they are worshiping something besides God. For instance, in our society, there are a lot of people who worship sports teams. I have found since moving to Wisconsin nine years ago, there are a lot of people around here, actually more people around here, who worship the Brewers or the Badgers or especially the Packers than worship God. There are a lot of people in our society who worship their body image or their reputation, and so they put their appearance or other people's perception of them up on this pedestal. And when you do that, it's a very slippery slope into self-worship. On top of that, a lot of people in our society worship their success at work. They probably would not put it in those terms, but if you were to really look at what's going on in their heart, they are putting their primary sense of identity and significance in life in, in the success of their job. And these are just a few things, but what we have to understand is that the idea of worship is simply that through our actions or our words or attitudes that we are saying that this or that thing is worthy of our utmost devotion. That's what worship is all about, just giving something our utmost devotion, putting it up on that pedestal, looking to that thing for identity and significance and security. And through the course of this gener joyful generosity sermon series, 
we're looking at this idea that joyful generosity is a form of worship. It's a form of worship that as we give generously and sacrificially to support God's purposes, we are demonstrating that God is our greatest treasure. Now last week we looked at 1 Chronicles 29. We're going to continue with the second half of the passage today. 1 Chronicles 29 is this very fascinating account of a capital campaign to raise money and resources in order to build a temple in Jerusalem. King David, who was king at that time, uh, was the one who really led the capital campaign. He started off by giving a major amount of his wealth to build the temple. He was very generous, but even though he was wealthy, his generosity was also sacrificial. Because when he gave, his personal net worth dropped in a very significant way. And on top of that, he gave out of his nest egg the money that he had set aside just in case things got more difficult later on. And he gave from that nest egg as well. So you see that that King David gave generously and abundantly and sacrificially. After King David gave, then all the leaders throughout Israel gave generously. And then all the people in general gave as well to the building of the temple. So this was the capital campaign. And the the passage that we looked at last week ends in verse 9 of 1 Chronicles 29. And verse 9 says, Then the people rejoiced, because they had given willingly. For with a whole heart they had offered freely to the Lord. David the king also rejoiced greatly. That's a great summary verse of what has taken place here. And there are three words and phrases I want to point out in this verse. One is that word rejoice that occurs two different times. A second phrase I want to point out is the phrase that says they had given willingly or they had given freely. Both of those phrases, they translate the same Hebrew word. And the third phrase I want to point out is that they gave with a whole heart. Now these phrases and words there of of rejoice and offer freely and with a whole heart, these three concepts all point to the idea of worship, of, of contributing to something that is of utmost value to them, and specifically contributing to what God is doing. And when we look at this passage in 1 Chronicles 29, we have to understand that the centerpiece of everything that's going on here is worship. I'd like to pray for us, and we're going to dig into the second half of 1 Chronicles 29. Father, we thank you that through Jesus we can worship you in spirit and in truth, that you welcome us into your presence, that we don't have to come to a church building or to a temple to worship you, but we can worship you and we can talk with you anywhere and everywhere when we come to you through faith in Jesus. So we thank you for that incredible privilege, and I pray that today, that, that as we look in the Scripture, that we look at events that took place 3,000 years ago, that I pray that, that you will do a work through your Holy Spirit in our lives to give us a, a joy and a generosity, a wholeheartedness, a willingness to to give freely to what you are doing in this world around us through our time and our talents and our finances. Lord, may we generously and joyfully contribute to what you are doing. But I pray, Lord, that you will first and foremost do a work in our hearts to help us to worship you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to look at 1 Chronicles 29, verses 10 through 22, and we're going to look at it in several different sections. And from this passage, I want to draw out three key points about the connection between worship and generosity. 
First of all, please follow along as I read 1 Chronicles 29, beginning in verse 10. It says, Therefore David blessed the Lord in the presence of all the assembly. And David said, Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. Now, there's a lot going on here in this passage, but one of the things I want to point out is that generosity fuels worship. Earlier in the passage, as we looked at last week, there is tremendous generosity taking place. The people have just given very generously. And what happens next? They're worshiping God. Generosity fuels worship. And and this this worship is not just half-hearted. It's not like, yay, God, you are so good. It's not like that at all. It's it's exuberant. I mean, it says, uh, yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. And when we see this piling up of these exalted terms, what it's doing is describing the greatness of God. I think, for instance, as well, of of Revelation chapter 5, verse 12. It's a picture of what's going on in heaven as angels are circling the throne of God, saying, Worthy is the Lamb who is slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. You see another example there of piling up these exalted words and phrases. As someone is declaring the greatness of God. And that's what's taking place back here in 1 Chronicles 29 as well. Declaring the greatness of God. And it shows that when we are excited about something, when we are especially in awe of something, it naturally overflows through us in joyful praise. And that's what's taking place here. The generosity that the people have experienced and given is welling up into wholehearted worship. Now, a key question here is, how does generosity fuel worship? One of the ways that generosity fuels worship is that when we give generously, it loosens the grip that money has in our hearts so that we can worship God with greater sincerity and passion. Because, you know, down through human history, money and the things that money can buy has been one of the biggest idols that people worship. And Jesus knew this very, very well. Uh, I mean, he talked more about money than he talked about prayer and heaven and hell combined. He talked a lot about money. I think, for instance, of Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 21. Jesus says there, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Instead, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. See, it's the idea of worship, that wherever your treasure is, whatever you're looking to to be your identity and significance and security, that is where your heart is going to be. And that is a matter of worship. A few verses later in verse 24, Jesus says, I'm going to read it from up there. No one can can, uh, serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. 
And so it's this idea of serving, which is the idea of worshiping. You can't worship two different masters. There's, there's a battle going on, and you have to make a choice of which are you going to worship. For a lot of people, money is one of those things that gets put up on a pedestal and worshiped. But here Jesus is calling us to put aside that idol of money and instead worship God with wholehearted devotion. And, and we have this battle going on inside of us. A couple weeks ago in our youth group on Wednesday night, uh, we had this fun illustration that took place during the devotional. The devotional was about Galatians chapter 5, which was about this battle in our hearts. A battle between uh, our sinful nature and the Holy Spirit battling for who's going to be on the throne of our hearts or who's going to be in the driver's seat of our lives. And so to illustrate this, we had a chair. And we said, okay, this chair is the throne of your heart. It's, it's the driver's seat of your life. And then we started out just with two people wrestling to see who could get on the chair. And who could stay on the chair. And, and then it evolved and I explained a little bit more as more people did it. But you see, as, this is a picture of the battle in our hearts. Sometimes it's between God and money. And, and sometimes it's between God and something else. Sometimes it's just God and our own selfish wills. And you see a picture here of, of we then put shirts on people that said self and God. And there you see self is pretty happy on the throne. We've got one of our leaders involved there. He's pretty happy on the throne. And God is not on the throne. And that's what oftentimes ends up happening. Is that ourselves, our selfish interests get on the throne. And God then is, may still be in our lives, but he's not on the throne. And, and so what happens is that God does a work in our lives. And part of that is through generosity. That as we give, it loosens the grip that money has in our hearts and frees us to worship God with greater sincerity and passion. I think of the work that God has done in my heart to help me um, just grow in worshiping him and more. But as I was growing up, I was quite materialistic. And this became especially evident when I got into college. My first few years of college, I was so incredibly proud of my fancy truck. And I had this big stereo system in my dorm room. The speakers were about this tall. The 15-inch subwoofers in there. I'm sure the RAs love me. Um, but I was so proud of that stereo system. I was so proud of having these expensive Oakley sunglasses. And it sounds kind of vain, but that's what was in my life. When I dreamed about the future, and I thought about what it would be like when I was growing up, I dreamed primarily about what I would own, the stuff that I would have. It was a very materialistic mindset. And as I came to faith in Christ in college and began to grow in that faith, God had a work to do in my life to loosen the grip that money and materialism and greed had in my heart. And God worked through a variety of different ways to, to, to help me to worship him more faithfully rather than idolizing the money and other stuff. But one of the things God used was giving money away. There are two specific episodes I remember while I was in college that God used to, to help me grow in worshiping him rather than worshiping money. One took place during a, a church service, kind of like this. That church service, just like our church service, you have ushers who receive the offering. They, they pass around little plates. And, and typically on Sunday there, I, I would put in a dollar or two. Because you know what? If you take a dollar or two and you kind of roll it up a little bit, no one can tell how much it is. And that way you feel good about giving something. 
And so that's what I do. I typically put in a dollar or two, but there's something that kind of tugged in my heart one day as I'm sitting there in church. It was not a sermon or I don't, I don't know exactly what it was, but, but something grabbed my heart and made me think, you know what, Brandon? You can probably give a little bit more than a dollar or two. So, so I opened my wallet. I had a $20 bill in there. I took out the $20 bill and I put it in the offering plate. And especially for a college student, I'd never done anything like that before in my life. $20. And just there was this feeling of, of excitement mixed with a little trepidation as I put that $20 bill in there and then watched the plate go on down the aisle and realized that $20 is gone. I'm not going to be able to spend that. But... There was such joy associated with it. I mean, there's this kind of thrill of giving. But there's a joy that led to this idea of worship, of God. I can do that. God. And he began to, to soften my heart more and more to, to, you know what, God? You matter so much more than money and possessions do. There was another experience I had in college. It was right at the end of a school year, and I had gone home for the summer. And um, just a few days after I got home, I got two pieces of mail on the same day. One piece of mail was from a friend that I had met that semester. As a brand new Christian, I had met that friend that semester in our campus ministry, and she was going on a summer missions trip. And this was a support letter asking if I could help financially support her missions trip. That was one piece of mail. The other piece of mail I got that day was my final paycheck for my job on campus. It was for $122. And I remember reading that support letter and thinking, you know what? What would it be like to give my entire paycheck to, to help support my friend's summer missions trip? $122 is quite a bit. Even now, that's quite a bit of money. But... I began to think about that, and it gave me such joy to think about. I wasn't thinking about the sacrifice. I was thinking about the joy of being able to support what God is doing through one of my friends. And that's a picture of joyful generosity, and God used that experience as well as that experience of giving $20 to the offering plate, of softening my heart and helping loosen the grip that money and materialism had on my heart and to free my heart to be able to worship Him with greater sincerity and passion. Because for me, God really had to deal with that materialism and that greed and that, that worship of money in my heart. And it was through the idea of giving that God helped loosen that idol. And he can do the same thing for all of us. That's one of the ways that generosity fuels worship, is that it loosens the grip that the idol of money has in our hearts. One of the other ways that generosity fuels worship is that when a group of Christians gives generously toward a common goal, it opens their hearts to stand in awe of what God is doing. Because is frequently what happens is that what God is doing there is so much bigger than ourselves, and it opens our hearts to that. And that's what we see happening right here in this passage, is you have this group of people who have dedicated themselves to God, they have given generously, and that generosity is now overflowing in worship. Please follow along as I read in verse 14, the next part of this passage. We see continued worship. King David says, but who am I? And what are my people that we should be able to give as generously as this or to offer so willingly? For all things come from you, and of your own we have given you. For we are strangers before you and sojourners, as all our fathers were. Our days on the earth are like a shadow, and there is no abiding. O oh Lord our God, all this abundance that we have provided for building you a house for your holy name comes from your hand and, and is all 
your own. And so we've seen that, that generosity fuels worship. We also see in this passage that worship fuels generosity. I mean, can you hear the sense of awe and wonder here? As King David says, but who am I and who are my people that we may be able to give as generously as this? There, there's a sense of awe, a, a sense of worship. And within that, you, you can he, see this underlying motivation, again, of worship. What's the underlying motivation for all the generosity that the people of Israel have shown in this passage? It's worship. Remember how back in verse 5 of First Chronicles 29, King David, who himself loved God very deeply, he asked the people, who of you will consecrate yourselves today to the Lord? The idea of consecration is setting yourself apart for God, worshiping God. It was worship that motivated their generosity. And within that worship, they understood that, God, everything we have is from you. And that comes through very clearly in this passage. Verse 11, King David said, For all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Verse 12, Both riches and honor come from you. Verse 14, It says, All things come from you, Lord, and of your own we have given you. Verse 16, O Lord our God, all this abundance that we have provided for building you a house for your holy name comes from your hand and is all your own. And so what we see here is that that worship leads to surrender, which leads to generosity. And worship also reminds us that all we have is from God and is to be joyously used for his purposes and for his glory. You know, everything we have comes from God. Everything good, our time, our talents, our money and other resources, our opportunities, our relationships, all of it is entrusted to us by God. And he calls us to use it in a way that honors him. I don't know if you've looked very closely at the graphics that we're using for this sermon series, uh, but in the background there's this image of upheld hands with a gift kind of between them. And this image represents a couple different things, but it's all about stewarding all the resources that God gives to us. On one hand, it can be pictured as receiving gifts from God. It's a recognition that everything we have comes from Him. And so we are recipients. But it also represents the fact that you see this idea of surrender, of surrendering it right back to God, of saying, God, not my will, but yours be done with the things you've entrusted to me. And, I mean, I think of, picture this image in your mind. In a church service like this, a father and a son sitting next to each other. And sometime before the offering is taken, the father pulls out his wallet, pulls out a $20 bill and hands it to his son. And tells his son, put this in the offering plate when it goes by. And the son follows through the ushers just like they do here. Bring the offering plates to receive the offering. And as the offering plate comes by, the son puts in the $20 bill. And imagine that then after the service, one of the ushers who was collecting the offering went up to that little boy and said, Son, you gave so much to the offering today. Well done. What made you be so generous? Because, you know, you see a little kid giving $20 in the offering, that would definitely raise your eyebrows. How would that boy respond in that case? Would he say, well, it was no big deal. I just felt like being generous today. Hopefully not. I, I would picture instead the boy saying something along the lines of, well, it was my dad's money. And it's fun to be able to give his money to support God's work. It was my dad's money. It belonged to him, 
It was entrusted to me, and I simply did with it what he wanted me to do. And this idea of it's my dad's money needs to be our perspective of everything we have. Everything we have is a gift from our Heavenly Father, and he entrusts it to us to use wisely for his purposes and his glory. Does that mean that we should give everything away that we have? Probably not. Probably not. Because God knows, I mean, we have living expenses. We are called in Scripture to support our families. On top of that, biblically, it's fine and appropriate to utilize money to enjoy life, to enjoy God's creation. But at the same time, when I look at American uh, Christians throughout America, we have a whole lot of room for growth, by and large, for giving joyfully and generously. A lot of room for growth. And so... So we have to understand, though, that everything comes from God. And it's such a cool thing that we get the privilege of investing in things that outlive us. Because our lives on this earth are so short. King David even references it here in verse 15. When he says that our days on the earth are like a shadow. And there is no abiding. There is no lasting. That You know, we have an expiration date on this earth. But it's such an amazing thing that by investing our resources, whether it be our time or our talents or, or our finances or our other, other things that we have that God's entrusted to us, we can invest these to help future generations grow as followers of Jesus. And on top of that, as, as we are faithful stewards of our resources, we also are investing in eternity. That's an incredible privilege that God gives us. Now let's move on to this passage. I want to finish it out by picking up in verse 17. King David says, I know, my God, that you test the heart and have pleasure in uprightness. In the upright, uprightness of my heart, I have freely offered all these things. And now I have seen your people who are present here offering freely and joyously to you. O Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, our fathers, keep forever such purposes and thoughts in the hearts of your people and direct their hearts toward you. Grant to Solomon, my son, a whole heart, that he may keep your commandments, your testimonies, and your statutes, performing all, and that he may build the palace for which I have made provision. So the third principle I want to draw out of this passage is that worshiping God requires or calls for an undivided heart. You, you see King David praying for his son, and for his people of Israel, that they will have an undivided heart for God. So it calls us to ask ourselves, where is our heart? When God looks at our heart, does he see integrity? Or is our heart pulled in multiple different directions? Are we dedicated to make God our number one priority in our lives? Is our heart surrendered to the point where we're willing to give freely and generously? It's, it starts in the heart. That worship is what fuels generosity. Worship is what God calls us to in all areas of our life. Not just here on Sunday mornings, but in everything. Worshiping God. You think about ancient Israel. If you know anything about their history, you probably know they had a lot of difficulties, spiritually speaking. They had a lot of the times they were wandering from God. But here in First Chronicles 29, even if it's just momentarily, they were all in with God. They were devoted to him. They consecrated themselves to him. They were, they were giving out of wholehearted worship. And that is what allowed them to give with such joyful generosity. And they left a rich 
legacy for generations to come. Now, the final part of the passage is verses 20 through 22. It says, Then David said to all the assembly, Bless the Lord your God. And all the assembly blessed the Lord, the God of their fathers, and bowed their heads and paid homage to the Lord and to the king. And they offered sacrifices to the Lord. And on the next day offered burnt offerings to the Lord, a thousand bulls, a thousand rams, and a thousand lambs, with their drink offerings and sacrifices in abundance for all Israel. And they ate and drank before the Lord on that day with great gladness. So what we see here is basically the after, afterglow of the generosity. They are celebrating. And I love this last verse. And they ate and drank before the Lord on that day with great gladness. On December 2nd of this year, so just in about a month and a half, we have a day set aside that we're calling Celebration Sunday. That's going to be when we tally up all the different uh, pledges that have come in for the capital campaign. And that's when we will celebrate together God's provision. We will worship together as they're doing here in this passage. We will eat together. We'll have a meal after the service as they're doing here in this passage. As we look at the, the reality of seeking to raise $1.4 million to help fund uh, this building project, it is daunting. I mean, it's a major step of faith. But it's also doable. I mean, the money is available to us, but it's going to take a lot of generosity and sacrifice on the part of the Freedman's family. But, I mean, think about the celebration that will take place if we're able to meet that goal. And beyond that, think about the impact it will have on people in the months and years and future generations to come. Because our, our goal is not ultimately just a building project. The goal, the mission to which God has called us is to make disciples of Jesus who worship God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. We have to recognize that we live in a culture where a lot of people are not worshiping God, but he created us to worship God. Now, I think of, of, of a quote from an author named David Foster Wallace. He was not a Christian, but he understood the nature of worship very well. He said, everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never feel you have enough. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Worship power, and you will end up feeling weak and afraid. And you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. So we live in a world where people are pursuing a lot of different things. And they're putting a lot of things up on that pedestal thinking, you know what, if I can get that, then... I will be satisfied. That is worship. Unfortunately, worshiping anything besides God doesn't do. It doesn't work. There's a reason why when you look around our society, the rates of depression and suicide are at all-time highs in America. It's because people are pursuing so many things besides God for their identity and significance and security. And as individual followers of Jesus and as a church family, we have a calling 
a responsibility and an opportunity to point people to worshiping the one true God who can ultimately satisfy. We, we are seeking to point people to the fact that we need to put God on the throne rather than self. You see in that picture, I, I mean, this was spontaneous, but I love the picture of Josh, the self, sitting on the floor, smiling, because he's not on the throne. But that's what happens when we got God in his rightful place on the throne. He gives us fulfillment and joy as well. So that's what we are seeking to point people to, the fact that God created us to glorify him and to enjoy him forever. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that you are so gracious to us. We did not deserve any of the good things you've given us, most particularly Jesus. Jesus, you, you came and died for us while we were yet sinners. And we say thank you. Lord, I pray that you will do a work in our hearts, loosening the grip of anything else that is grabbing our hearts and then calling us to worship that thing rather than you. Lord, even as we think about the brewers losing last night, I mean, it's, it's something that can cause heartache. But even with a loss like that, Lord, help us to remember that a sports team is not where we get our identity and significance. Money is not where we get our identity and significance. Success, whether it's at work or on the athletic field or in school, popularity, these things are not a place to find our ultimate significance. Our ultimate identity, significance, and security, Lord, ought to come from you. And so, Lord, I pray that you will continue to do work in each one of our hearts, loosen the grip of these idols, so that we can worship you with wholehearted devotion. We thank you, Lord, that you are a good Father and a gracious Father who bears with us even as we struggle in these things. Lord, open our eyes in fresh ways to your goodness. And Lord, empower us to worship you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.